Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, listeners. Happy National Blueberry Muffin Day, and welcome to the 81st episode of Movie Oubliette, the international podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, binging on Iconicon in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, watching all the Stephen King movies in a very short amount of time in Melbourne, <laughs> Australia. <laughs> We focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror movies because diving into an underwater wonderland, firing up a flamethrower and growing eyeballs in the palms of our hands is our idea of the summer holiday. <laughs> Dan, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, Coderad. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, I'm just... Um, yeah, enjoying Iconicon. Hopefully, when we're recording this, it's not actually happening yet. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like we're in a time travel movie. What part of the timeline are we on? I know, I know. At the moment, we're frantically preparing for it. But when you listen to this, it'll we're one of the last things in the schedule. I think. So, ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's exciting. So you're watching every Stephen King movie there is. <laughs> well, I mean, all the ones that came out in the 80s, since it is yeah. 80s for Iconicon. But there were uh, quite a lot of them, 14. I know. And, wow, very different, varying yes. qualities, genres. Mm. It's a smorgasbord of cinematic uh, enjoyment. It is, yeah. It's pretty... <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait to hear you talk about it, actually, which you've already done by now. I don't know. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, anything in the mailbag today, Conrad? Well, speaking of you doing a Stephen King marathon, we heard from Nick Hardy, who said that his favourite is Stand By Me, and the scariest for him was Cujo. I think I watched it when I was too young. Love watching the anthology's Cat's Eye and Creep Show too. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I do love... Or maybe enjoy watching the sort of lesser known or more obscure mm. uh, adaptations that came out in the 80s. So, hmm, good choices. Yeah, I can imagine how watching Cujo at a very young age, considering there's a young boy being terrorized in the yeah. back of a car until yeah. he almost dies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> it gets to a point where you think, is that acting or is that real terror? <laughs> yeah, is it actual trauma they're putting this kid through? Yeah. Here? Yeah, it's pretty nail-biting stuff. Kevin from Planet X said his favourite is Christine. It's not a terribly scary film, but since I was a massive Herbie the Love Bug fan as a kid, the psychotic blood-red Plymouth Fury served as a good counterpoint. Yeah, wow. Just slightly. <laughs> good companion piece. Yeah. 
speaking of lesser known 80s Stephen King adaptations, Mark D with a C said, Silver Bullet. Okay, maybe not the best, but I knew the composer of one of the songs and had a fun time in the theatre with his family waiting to see his name in the credits at the end. <laughs> uh, yes, as someone that has worked in film, it's always that moment where you see your name and you point it out. <laughs> it's such a good feeling. It is, yeah. And on the disappointing final boss in V, Eddie Coulter wrote to us to say, the one that comes to mind is the poorly designed CGI mess that was the Scorpion King in The Mummy Return. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is not a good effect. <laughs> That's the rock, isn't it? Isn't it yeah. supposed to be the rock? Yes, oh, it wow. is. Yeah. I seem to remember the Corridor crew tried to fix it, didn't they, on a YouTube yeah, video? Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. Yeah. And they did. <laughs> yeah, their version was much better. That was just a deep fake. So. Much better. And finally, on the Andromeda strain, we heard from Surge of cold crash pictures. Oh, hey, Serge. Hello, Serge. He said, the thing about the Andromeda strain is that it has absolutely zero character arcs. You have to be cool with that if you're going to enjoy it. People do lots of things and solve lots of problems, but they learn absolutely zero things about themselves along the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was my yeah. biggest issue with, with that movie. Oh, also the fact that it's just too many graphs, <laughs> too much analysis of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas I was lapping that up, but yeah, it is true. I mean, Ruth does learn that she doesn't like being probed and <laughs> tarred and well, xenoned, so. and, but I think she knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks everyone for getting in touch. We love to hear from you, so please do carry on responding to our socials and emailing us. Yes, 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 yes. So, Conrad, what are we doing today? Well, I've got a funny feeling we'll be going underwater again because of the old uh, abyss crossover with Dreamland. So, <laughs> amble on over here. Ah, there's a suit. What's this? I think it's your diving suit. Okay, I'll put this thing on. God, it's been cumbersome. Are you sure I need this? I don't think I'm underwater in here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. There's floaties. <laughs> Yeah, I think I found something inside this Russian ship or something. I'm coming back. Okay. Oh, my astronaut training starts in two days. Welcome back, Conrad. It's bone dry. That's odd. <laughs> it's very strange. So the movie I have for us today is the counterpoint to the abyss, which we did on the Dreamland podcast. It is, of course, Leviathan, another sci-fi underwater movie that was released in 1989. Directed by George P. Kosmatos, written by David People and Jeb Stewart, and starring Peter Weller, Richard Krenner, Amanda Pays, Daniel Stern, Ernie Hudson, Michael Carmine, Lisa Eilbacker, and Hector Elizondo. Ooh, yes, yes. Uh, this is the father of Panos Kosmatos, the director of Beyond the Black Rainbow, and Mandy. Oh. Bit of trivia there. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. Yeah. Very different directors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens in this film? Well, in this film, the downtrodden blue-collar crew of a futuristic mining operation investigate a derelict craft, and one of them is infested with an unknown life form that begins to kill crew members one by one. 
As the crew attempt to blow it out of the airlock, the resident scientist double-crosses them and the company they work for decides they're expendable. Eventually, the three remaining survivors make a desperate escape bid, the black guy dies and the lone female strips down to her white underwear. Oh, did I mention that this isn't alien? No. <laughs> Because it's underwater, you see. So grab your snorkel, because we're double dipping on 80s underwater sci-fi with Leviathan. Yes, with our guests. <laughs> yes, with our guests. After the break. Joining us today in our second deep dive into 80s underwater sci-fi are the hosts of Dreamland, the retro-blasting podcast. Returning champions, Melinda Mock and Aaron Harper. Hey, Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Champions. Wow. Yeah, it's like you haven't left. We've just been recording for like six hours. We've been in this room for like days. <laughs> I feel like it's starting to smell. <laughs> I feel like there's some sort of weird creature living next door to us in the room. So that's just Michael in the other room. <laughs> he doesn't like it when you call him a weird creature. <laughs> so Leviathan, our second voyage into underwater sci-fi from 1989, is part of our Iconicon crossover special. Who had seen this movie before? I, I will say that I had in the 80s wow. on rental VHS. Uh, I had not seen it. Nor had I. I think I've heard of it. I've I don't seen know the if... cover because it's a striking cover. It's got the diver like swimming towards the surface in that like shaft of light V-shaped Which is shaft of pretty light. much exactly the same as the abyss. Almost, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a black with like a blue streak going down the middle and it's like, ooh, you're under the water. Am I being too snarky? <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a female figure that's swimming towards the surface, oh. so there's quite a strong focus on her butt. <laughs> oh, well, good for her. Yeah, I can't say that <laughs> about mean, my life. What a pair is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> I was talking about the two of us. Oh. And how we're quite a pair. I thought you were talking about my butt. I, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Pear-shaped. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. <laughs> I'll accept that. Wow. We've only just started. Oh, my. Sorry. Um, Dan, how about you? Uh, no, I've never seen this. This is a first time viewing for me. Right. So what are our first impressions? I guess, especially in comparison with James Cameron's The Abyss. James Cameron went for a very uplifting, friendly alien in the denouement of his movie, whereas this one decidedly does not go for a friendly alien. No, and I'm not sure what it is exactly. Um, we can talk about that. It's definitely got a different tone than The Abyss, although there are a ton of similarities between this, The Abyss, and like the five or six other underwater movies that all sort of came out within a two-year span. Yeah. A blue-collar crew and some sort of sexist humor levied at the female characters who are trying to succeed in a very male-dominated field and the tension of being in an underwater place where it's a little scary and you're reliant on equipment just to live and... I don't know, that claustrophobic type of feeling. 
But those things are always going to be a part of movies like this, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This film does have pretty good credentials going in. So you have uh, the director is George P. Cosmatos, who directed Rambo First Blood <laughs> Part 2 and Cobra. <laughs> Classics both, I'm sure. I've seen neither. Uh, we've uh, talked about Cobra on Dreamland. I can Dreamland. tell you everything you ever wanted to know about either of those movies. <laughs> I've seen them so many times. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> produced by uh, Lawrence and Charles Gordon, the producers of Predator and Die Hard, starring Peter Weller of Robocop, Ernie Hudson of Ghostbusters, written by David Webb Peoples of Blade Runner and Twelve Monkeys, and Jeb Stewart of Die Hard and the Fugitive, with a score by Jerry Goldsmith of Alien, of course, most significantly in this context. Cinematography by Alex Thompson of Legend, Labyrinth and Raw Deal and uh, concept designs by Ron Cobb, who's so influential in sci-fi, working on Alien and Star Wars and so on. You'd think that this is going to be pretty high caliber stuff, isn't it? I wasn't laboring under that impression, though. You weren't? I wasn't. I was hopeful. Well, so to me, the big red flag from the beginning is George Cosmatos. He is sort of known for being a, a shadow director. Mm -hmm. It seems like in the Stallone films that he works on, that Stallone has a heavy hand in the directing of the two that you mentioned in particular. And I really feel like in Cobra especially, Stallone was pulling the strings behind the scenes. But I just don't think he's a great director. And I, I even read a, a quote aloud to Aaron earlier today where Stan Winston and his crew noted that he threw his hands up in the air and said, I don't know what I'm doing. So <laughs> you guys run second camera. Like They were very complimentary about it. They were saying things like, you know, he was so generous with allowing us, you know, the ability to direct the action uh, when it comes to the creature. And he was so thoughtful and always asked us how we would approach solving a problem. And in my head, I'm thinking, so he just didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but you can feel that in the lack of reaction that you see pretty much all the way through this film. And to me, that's one of the biggest problems of this movie, not to jump the gun, but it's characters in these outrageous situations just having very flat affects and just being like, wow, that's, you're taking this really well. <laughs> that's, uh, that's two people merged into one. <laughs> just stare just... blankly at the floor. <laughs> yeah. My favorite for that is Bowman, who she goes in to see Six Pack and sees his terrible skin condition. Right. And she doesn't react in any way. She just clearly decides, well, my life is over and then goes and kills herself. Well, I mean, shoot. It's, it's almost like once you see that she sees it and she knows that that's what's going to happen to her. So she does kill herself, which almost makes her lack of reaction better in terms of an acting choice to me. Oh, okay. But what's weird to me then is that the doctor, first of all, walks into her room where she's taking a shower. Yeah. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't yell out, hey, hello, are you in here? He just sort of quietly walks in he where someone's of, taking a shower. He peels off from talking to the Weller character yeah. and just doesn't even tell him. It's almost like he just hears the shower running and goes, oh, I'm mm. going to go that way. And then he goes in there and then he... He's a doctor. He doesn't immediately check her pulse, which is the first thing I would do, right? Like you see someone laying unconscious who has clearly tried to kill themselves. You check their pulse and then you commence CPR or whatever. Nope, doesn't do any of that. He just picks up her hand, looks at it visually and says, yep, she cut her wrist. She must be dead. And then that's, that's <laughs> they don't even turn the shower off. No, do they me? don't even turn the shower And then they all come in and I'm like, it's like the director was standing there saying, okay, absolutely none of this gets through to you. No reactions whatsoever. Like, go. <laughs> 
they all just stare blankly at this dead body. You got a bunch of dudes just like everybody file in and stand and stare at the dead naked lady. That's okay. Right. <laughs> no reaction. It's just a weird choice. Yeah. I think the actors talk about the fact that they directed themselves as well. Well, there you go. You know, they were talking about some directors just leave you to find the character because they trust your skill as an actor. I'm thinking, yeah, he just wasn't there, was he? No. It's more of that language to look out for in an interview. (laughs) Yeah. These are signs that can be marks of very good directors and they can be marks of very not present directors. Yeah. Yeah. You have a lot of other people who are involved who are good at what they do. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. Stan Winston, as the effects are a big part of this. And for what they are, I think they're well done. I don't think they're particularly new. Unlike The Abyss, there wasn't, to my visual examination, there wasn't a lot of groundbreaking effects work that was done as far as they had to come up with a new technique. I could be wrong. You guys can correct me. But it just didn't say anything that really sc- didn't scream derivative of some other work. I love the effects. Yeah. this is like this movie was like just ticked all my boxes like this is exactly the type of movie that I enjoy and I know it's not a good movie there's a lot of problems with science whereas you know with the abyss it's all very realistic and they're actually underwater and and they're having to go through all these grueling environments this is like none of that like at no point did I feel that they were underwater apart from in that last scene where they're swimming to the surface which felt impossible as well like they're they're swimming very quickly to the surface (laughs) from the depths of the ocean. Is that possible? Wouldn't their brains no. just explode? <laughs> I mean, and I, their I eyes think... just bleed? Like... You ever opened a can of Coke and it and it makes that pop and then that fizzing sound? That's what would have been happening inside of them in that moment if they yeah, had done that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and so a lot of those scenes when they're underwater and they're working on the mine, it's all dry for wet effects, right? So it's all just slow motion, floaties. Mm-hmm. that aren't actually floaties in water. Like, there was no point in the movie where I thought, wow, they're underwater. <laughs> I just thought, wow, everything's very dry <laughs> and there's a lot of floaties. Uh, I don't know. It didn't convince me. And I think the sound design wasn't very good in that respect as well. It just didn't feel immersive enough. It didn't feel like you were underwater at all. No, and that dry for wet shooting choice that they had, it made things a lot simpler. It's almost like they looked at what was happening with James Cameron's movie and thought, screw that. Yeah. So they just go for a smoke-filmed room slow motion and then burned these candles that let off ash that would just float in the air so everyone had to wear masks. Yeah. I read that initially they were using feathers, but they kept kind of like going like this, like side to side feathers. And it's like, yeah, that's not, that's not how water works. No. And as well as that, the slow motion effect meant that they couldn't record dialogue at the same time, obviously, because they'd be speaking slowly. So unlike The Abyss, which was groundbreaking because it was the first movie to record dialogue live underwater, this movie, they just cover the mouths up with an enormous radio microphone and then loop all of the dialogue later but it just means that during this tense sequence like when de jesus is worried that he's going to decompress and they're all shouting quick get him into the airlock what are we going to do you cut to their faces and it's slow-mo and you've got these panicky lines but their faces aren't doing anything at all so it's just really weird and disconnected i thought it was convincing to be honest i thought it was just a nice troubleshooting like oh that works i agree i think that covering the mouths was a good idea and i kind of like even though the suits look like something out of a 50s 
<laughs> outer space movie. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that they were kind of clever. Like, they looked different. They made it have a distinctive feel. And they did sort of pull from that deep undersea tradition mm-hmm. of, like, the big giant suits that are difficult to walk around in. And so I didn't have any problem with any of that. I think most of my issues with the movie had to do with... And it's not the actors, because I know I've seen the actors in different things, and they're good actors. It's just mm-hmm. sort of like... I assume it's the direction. Like, they just don't react at all (laughs) in a lot of really (laughs) crazy situations. And I mean, I kind of like that they don't overreact. Yeah, Yeah, I prefer that to overreacting. I'm currently trying to watch Maximum Overdrive, and the screaming (laughs) in that is just... Oh, my. I just wanted to put it on mute all the time. It's just intense screaming. So I'm glad there's none of that. (laughs) we made you. We made you. (laughs) Just remember that. Can we talk about what this is supposed to be? Like, what? It's supposed to be Russians experimenting with genetic mutation by feeding the crew of a, is it a ship? I think it's, it's a, a ship, ship, not a submarine. Right. Called Leviathan, which seems like a bit on the nose. I mean, if mm-hmm. you're going to experiment with genetic aberrations, do you want to call it Leviathan? Anyway. I got accepted to Project Leviathan. <laughs> Oh. oh, why did you react like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing, man. I'm sure it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Setting sail on the SS Iceberg. You know, it, doesn't, it just doesn't seem like a great idea. Can I get on the SS Arrival, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think they were intending to create superhuman underwater people with fins, but it all went horribly wrong and they smooshed into each other and then died. It's so funny because I did not get that whole experiment Russian experimentation vibe. I didn't get that at all. Did you miss that? I didn't know that that was. No, I completely missed that. There's a lot of stuff with the creature in this movie that just glaze over really quickly and they don't really explore. Like the fact that they adopt the intelligence of all the people it absorbs. I didn't, I mean, was that explored at all? It just, I don't Not really. Know. It was just used to explain something that happened, but it wasn't really, they didn't have any preamble to it or uh, any discussion of why or how yeah. uh, it happened. I question why you would put something designed to genetically modify a person and you store it in a vodka suspension. It sounds like the best part of it to me. Wouldn't but... that sterilize or denature <laughs> right. or break down? That's how you trick any Russian. It's exactly <laughs> Exactly right. That is exactly right. No, what I was thinking was like, okay, so let's go back to the Russian ship really quick. Okay, so you've got a whole Russian crew, right? And they're doing the whole society shunting thing where they all become one great big mass of people that are all like one conglomeration of a thing, right? It's so funny that you mentioned society. <laughs> I was thinking that the entire time. Were you? Okay. Yeah. And so they like, they sink, right? And you know, they're down there and it's like, okay, so then that thing is like out in the ocean now. Yeah. And we don't ever see it, but it's out there because I mean, being under the water wouldn't kill it, right? No. And the same thing with the two people like Six Pack and Bo yeah. who end up merging together and then they dump them into, aside from the leg that gets away, like, <laughs> that was a creepy get flushed leg. out into the ocean, right? Yeah. I was thinking, worst idea ever. Right. Yeah. Well, what are you starting now? I know. So like you've got these genetically modified organisms out in the world that are, 
you know, potentially like reproducing or doing whatever they do. And we're not really sure how it transfers. Is it like a werewolf thing? Because you see the one guy get scratched on the chest and then he kind of becomes the thing through that. So is it transmitted that way or do you have to ingest it and it has to go that way? So, I mean, it's all very vague, but, you know, this thing is now out in the water too. Aaron made a great point when we were watching it. He was like, you know, wouldn't it have been really scary if they had like been, had a porthole or something and you saw the faces of that thing swimming next and clunking against the thing like it's outside trying to get in and then you've got one inside that's trying to get you inside and so you really can't get away like that would have really added something to it. I think it would have been it. really effective. You could hear it scuttling yeah. around and yeah. they would have a quiet moment where they're having a little nice talk and then behind them in the glass you would just see Bo and Six Pack's faces just sort of drift in and be like trying to get through the porthole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, oh. yeah. I mean for a movie that is set underwater they don't really utilize the water aspect very much. It's no. Yeah, I kept forgetting that they were there. Yeah. I mean, the set itself, it felt like, are we in space? Like, mm-hmm. it felt like a space station. Like, it didn't feel kind of underwater until the lights went out. That's when it felt, oh, yeah, that's right. All yeah. underwater stations are dimly lit. Yeah. yeah. It didn't look very lived in either. It looked squeaky clean, and I think they'd been there for a while. Yeah, two months, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't fully understand the creature and then when it makes the jump from being a skin disease that kills people mm-hmm. and then you have the scene where de jesus is attacked by i think an eel that's yeah. been birthed by a foot i don't understand anyway that attacks him in the kitchen and peter weller goes and tells amanda pays williams that thing that killed six pack and bow it's still here and it just got to Jesus and you cut to her and she has no reaction and no follow-up questions. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I accept that. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> it's grown legs now. What are you talking about? I mean, if somebody came to you and said, COVID is attacking people, you'd have some follow-up questions. <laughs> That's the understatement. Well, of the year. Yeah. <laughs> not to jump too far ahead, but staying with the whole creature thing, it's like, I'm not sure at what point it switches over from being a conglomeration of all of the people that have been sort of shunted together to being a Godzilla. <laughs> like, I'm just not really what sure. That's the first one from why the Russian it's ship. A, why is it a Godzilla? Yeah. And and where did it start <laughs> assimilating like fish animals? Yeah. Like, it just becomes like all the underwater creatures at the same time. Like, when, when did that happen? Yeah. What's it standing on? Why do they have flamethrowers? I mean, <laughs> okay. there are so many questions. <laughs> that is a fair question. Why did they have a flamethrower for every surviving person? in an underwater station. Standard issue equipment for underwater mining, <laughs> Acme clearly. flamethrowers. <laughs> yeah, the creature itself is the Stan Winston studio. They did not have a lot of time to do it. And then they were told they had to do the underwater suits as well. So then they had half as much time. And Alec Gillis and Tom Rudruff, who were in Stan Winston studio then, but shortly after, Leviathan left to form Amalgamated Dynamics and work on their own. They're really entertaining in the making of documentary, talking about what a hellish experience this was trying to pull this creature together. When you've got the director, George P. Cosmatos, just sort of pointing at various pictures and saying, yeah, some of that and some of this and some of this. (laughs) And it just ends up this weird mess that he then just shoots really abstractly. So you can't tell if it's one creature or two creatures. Yeah. 
you have no idea of the size. Yeah. Like it just gets bigger and smaller at will. How it moves. Yeah. And when you look at the suit, it's just like this turd that's rooted <laughs> on the floor. Yeah. That can't, can't move. move. And just kind of flails around with yeah. tentacles and scales and fish heads and people heads. And <laughs> I was never scared of it at all. No. Even no. back no. in the day. A lot of screaming. A lot of screaming. A lot of steam and water. And, and the third act was just everything all at the same time. Mm-hmm. It yeah. really was. It kind of reminded me of that Simpsons episode where Homer designs a car. It's like <laughs> George P. Cosmatos like designing a creature. We just want everything. Just stick everything into it. Yeah. It's like watching the prequels. <laughs> yeah. It's so dense. There's so much going on in every frame. <laughs> it's a lot to take in. And I will compare it to The Abyss in the sense that the third act is just really weird. It's not as weird as The Abyss in terms of the hard right turn. But it's like you can definitely feel in that third act all of those macho American action movie tropes that yeah. sort of suddenly just come in full force in the last act especially mm. like just as soon as as Peter Weller like breaks the surface of the water he turns into like die hard rambo and <laughs> lethal weapon like all wrapped that, up that one liner oh, i yeah. mean <laughs> several like several moments like he has a die hard moment where he punches meg foster he has like the rambo moment where he's like say ah mother effer and he like i don't know there's more of them down there though I there's get, at least two others well yeah. that's the thing is like if pieces of it can fall off and turn into another monster that can then start the whole process up again every sliver and slice of that thing that they took off of it should actually have turned into another monster and then the ones that they flushed outside should still be there doing stuff. Agree. Monster stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of weird comparison, but like how Evil Dead 1 felt when it ended, how it just sort of ended and then it ended again. And then it just sort of seemed to be these places where (laughs) they kept doing more jump scares and surprises. This movie felt a little bit like they shot several and we're going to go with one. And then they said, I just put them all in there. The emergence of the sharks. I mean, I follow a subreddit called Abrupt (laughs) Chaos and I felt like this is abrupt sharks. I mean, what? Where did they come? from right like why do you even need them if you're gonna have godzilla come up and kill ernie first of all why are you killing ernie hudson's character oh egregious egregious. and then secondly why did you why were the sharks even there like is it adding tension like you're just sitting there looking at it i feel like i am the cast of the film not reacting to the movie just going okay okay no one expects the shark inquisition (laughs) (laughs) yeah Plot twist, sharks. <laughs> hey, did you remember we're in the ocean? There's sharks here. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of the 1998 Stephen Summers movie, Deep Rising. Did anybody see that? No, I haven't seen I that. I think I vaguely watched that. Oh, it's just that at the end of, after you've been through the whole monster on a cruise ship main part of the story, they get away and end up having to go to this island. And just as they're approaching the island, you hear this Godzilla roar. <laughs> and the main character, Treat Williams, just says, now what? <laughs> the credits roll. Well, that actually sounds good, Conrad. Yeah, it does. It is. Yeah, it's funny. I quite like Deep Rising. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Is that the tentacle monster movie? Where, like, someone gets sucked into a toilet? Yes. Oh, well. oh that's, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
You'll be surprised to hear that I've made a list. I'm shocked. Glad you're seated. <laughs> so this movie, it does have a few similarities with Alien. Yeah. That's shocking too. I know. <laughs> yeah, it felt like Alien mixed with the thing. Yeah, pretty underwater. much. Yeah. yeah, basically, you know, crew finds derelict ship, somebody comes back infected, the mutated remains that move under a blanket while somebody's not looking. Uh-huh. That's from the thing. You have a sliced off part of the monster surviving, although in the thing it's a head, which is like really memorable, whereas here it's this really manky foot, which <laughs> I mean, it's more horrifying to me because I hate Fear Pete, the foot. But, yeah. <laughs> Leviathan sabotages the blood supply at one point in the thing it was to get rid of a testing method, but in this movie it's just because it's hungry or something. <laughs> Not entirely sure. Never explained. Yeah. Never explained. They have a plot to flush it out of the airlock. Doesn't work. And the doctor realizes the threat, the virus, stroke, creature, stroke, what is it, poses to civilization and therefore destroys their only means of escape so that they're stranded there. Somebody has a chest burster. And at one point, the lone female character decides to take off all of her clothes except for white underwear. Yeah. I think that's most of the things. I felt that weird spider creature as well was very face huggy. Yeah. Yeah. Does that creature even exist? Like a sea spider. Do those tube worms exist? That was crazy when they go down in that tube. It was like Willy Wonka's twisted Do you remember, like, you're watching it and they're like, oh my God, she's in the tube worms. And I'm like, is that a thing? (laughs) I think it is a thing. I think it is a thing, but I'm not sure they're that big. I'm not sure. I've never seen it, but I I don't like the ocean, so it's possible that I just wouldn't know about it. But it was truly terrifying and they were very matter of fact about it and I was like can we spend a little time on this because oh my god I kept expecting one to like attack them or something the way that they reacted to going into the two worm forest well what was so funny was when we were watching that part of the movie Michael's sitting there and he's doing the horror movie thing where he's yelling at the screen he's like why would he even be in the ship why are you going in the ship don't go in the ship and then it turns out he is in the ship and he's hmm. he's found all the things but i don't know there was like a lot of weird questions about they go into the ship and they find the stuff and you find some vodka that's on the bottom of the sea and the first thing you think is i'm going to drink it yeah. um <laughs> why not just no i have to point out talking about characters like daniel stern for some reason i just couldn't pick what he was from and of course he's from home alone and he's one of the wet bandits of course so. <laughs> the ultimate wet bandit in this movie actually he's not a very nice guy is he let's be honest no he's awful he's yeah. pretty revolting towards amanda pay's character everyone. williams yeah, well, yeah. Everyone, all yeah. the woman just terrible, terrible. It was terrible. so funny because we were talking, Aaron and I were talking about this earlier, and it's like, you know, in The Abyss, you have the female characters sort of being portrayed as bitches, and but they're never really sexualized, and we sort of talked about that when we went through it, but in this movie, it's the exact opposite. So it sort of represents the dichotomy of the two possible ways that women were treated in the very masculine worlds that they would find themselves in in the 80s. But I, I do feel with this film, it's just one character 
mistreating woman. It's not the right. whole crew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's just him. Yeah. I noticed yeah. that later. We made the joke about one character stripping down to her just white underwear, which was, I know whenever I go to the undersea mining facility, I always, I bring a bunch of things, but I always bring my nice white lacy underwear with me well, to, and, for and when it, I'm getting a medical examination. <laughs> As but, a lady, I got to tell you, like the fact that they match was like a big deal because I'm sorry, but <laughs> was, most strange. of the time I hate to break the facade. Odd guys, but that is not the case. <laughs> but Dan, to your point, you know, the interactions between her and Doc were actually, I thought, you know, she's standing there in her underwear and they're just having a normal conversation. It's not awkward. He's not treating her like anything that you shouldn't, you know, it was just, it was like, here's kind of a normal interaction to compare everything else to. Yeah. Of course, then he just sort of strolls into the shower room and just opens the shower door. <laughs> he, but... <laughs> to your point, he does act very professionally toward her and it mm-hmm. is just the six-pack character who, who is just over the top with his staring at the lady's boobs and making lewd comments and groping them and looking at nudie mags just very openly in front of everyone. And it was just kind of cringy and awkward. But I do notice in watching a lot of 80s movies in preparation for Iconicon that there are so many movies from the 80s that make a point of showing like centerfolds and nude women pinups up on the wall. Like, what is that? Like, I don't remember that, but it's a thing. It's in Aliens as well, actually. Yeah. And Maximum Overdrive. And actually, I think in Maximum Overdrive, some of those shots are explicit. They are. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a little shocked, but then that movie had a kid being run over with a steamroller. So. <laughs> Maximum Overdrive makes all the wrong choices, though. I mean, every scene is the wrong oh, choice. Oh, I disagree. <laughs> but it's kind of delicious for that, it's though, so isn't great. it? It's so great. I was kind of cheering when the baseball kid got steamrolled. <laughs> I loved it. Quite audacious. <laughs> I loved it. Whereas this movie, not necessarily, it feels, I mean, it's kind of cheap to compare it to the monster, just an amalgam of various other science fiction and underwater films just slithering around rather ineffectively. But it kind of is. I mean, are any of the characters compelling? I kind of like Peter Weller's character, the arc of the geologist put in charge of something who's not really a manager and and is not coping well with it. I don't really understand his expertise. Like the first scene, what is he doing? Uh, He's just like mashing all the buttons, flicking through (laughs) screens that don't seem to make any sense whatsoever, calling the dock that's obviously not there. I mean, that first scene, there's no peril really. De Jesus kind of runs out of oxygen and hyperventilates and then he, I don't know, I, I felt like Jerry Goldsmith's score was doing all the heavy lifting and everything else was actually quite boring to watch. Yeah. Yes. I know. Jerry's quite obvious in this as well, which I was a little bit shocked by. For example, when the doc is going through the paperwork from the Russian sub and he pulls out a file that has deceased written on it and all of a sudden Jerry's there with this stinger like Dear. yeah <laughs> really surely it's it's a Cosmatos sort of decision or yeah. uh, direction in that respect uh, I mean I do think maybe there was a language barrier as well because this was filmed in Italy with a, a largely Italian crew and George P. Cosmatos is 
Italian, Greek, Greek heritage, yeah. born in Italy. So there must have been some sort of language barrier. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. The special effects guys had to draw pictures because there was just no way of explaining what they wanted or needed. Yeah. So to, to that effect, there was one really, really bad spot that I noticed, and I think you saw it too uh, when you were watching through. Uh, it's the scene where they find the safe, and there's this sort of long, like this long shot that sort of slowly zooms in on the safe. Oh, yeah. uh, and it just felt very TV show like to do that to just sort of like get in closer to it and then where it sort of is supposed to hold it's like they didn't just continue filming with the camera no longer zooming in they literally just paused the video you see the film grain <laughs> stop crawling across the screen it's like they just yes. duplicated that frame and it was so it was so weird because up to that point I was kind of like this the the cinematography on this movie is actually very interesting and I was actually kind of going wow this is really better than I expected it to be and then they do that and I'm like that's so unexpected, like just a very early starter kind of mistake to make. If you need a few more milliseconds, there are other ways to achieve that than to just hold the frame. Yeah, mm. it's clunky holding on a still like that. It just speaks volumes of, we didn't get this shot on the day, so we're just going to do it in post. Mm. It's like stop printed slow motion, which I hate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Capricorn one's hilarious, so you get a single frame every three seconds at the end of that movie. <laughs> it's insane. But there's, a, yeah. there's another bit that I was thinking of in terms of clunky filmmaking as well that the crew's arguing over the fact that Doc didn't show up and then you suddenly cut to a shot of Peter Weller staring directly at you yeah. saying, hey guys, don't worry about it, I'll sort the Doc out or whatever and then you back away and you realise he's talking into a mirror practising this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just really clunky and you think this is bad movie making because I'm disoriented. Yeah, it was jarring. Yeah, it was jarring. It um, was. It is funny, though, when he picks up a book and it's titled One Minute Manager. Like, yeah. He clearly does not know what he's doing. No. I kind of liked that about him, that he <laughs> sort of has an arc, you know, because he starts out being a little bit unsure. And, and so by the end, he's very self-assured and he's like Rambo and he's mm. killing this monster. So it's yeah. an arc for an action movie. I mean, it's not. It is. It's not profound. Yeah. Yeah. He's like not really part of the crew at the start and he kind of develops a sense of respect or gets their respect by the end of it. I mean, there's no characters by the end, so there's not <laughs> the much one character, respect. The well, maybe, other... maybe he's more like us than he thinks. Well, the other character, yeah. to, that's, like, that's the line I'm actually going to is that, that, no, you're fine. The character, the dark haired girl, I can't remember her name. Sorry. Elizabeth Willie Williams. Willie. Played so by Amanda Page. She's really kind of got a cool, like they don't develop it a lot. But, like, I love the fact that she's in training to be an astronaut. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's such a cool backstory for her. I wish that there was more done with that a little bit. But she's talking to him and she's like, I think you're more like us than you think. And I'm like, and Aaron pointed out, he was like, you're not one of them. Like, you're not a blue collar person. You're going to be an astronaut. Like, clearly the doctor and Peter Weller and her are all, like, college educated, highfalutin, fancy people. And the other characters are all just more kind of blue collar minor type people and so there's kind of a divide there but they're acting like they're all much like in the abyss they're all these blue collar you know which was more believable Joe. in the it's abyss weird yeah yeah, weird yeah. i mean i i found it refreshing that at least there was diversity you know there were two latino True. characters there's a black character there's like 
two female I mean in the abyss there were two female characters but sort of it wasn't just a whole bunch of white guys yeah but then you get to the end of the movie and there's like Ernie Hudson and the heterosexual white couple who clearly are attracted to each other and you think oh Ernie you're so dead and he gets all the way to the Uh, surface and you think oh wow groundbreaking he's still oh Oh, no, he's not. no. It does and then he survives like the so sharks. Disappointing. <laughs> and then, yeah. I couldn't believe it. It's real unfortunate. <laughs> he was very <laughs> angry about it, Ernie Hudson. Rightfully so. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't believe it. I kept, when the helicopter landed, I was counting the feet that they shot. Because I'm like, surely we just didn't see it, but they got Ernie. Surely everything's fine. No, it's just Buckaroo Banzai doing his strut <laughs> across the top of that <laughs> yeah. tarmac. Yeah. How do we feel about him punching a woman into unconsciousness at the end of the movie? Well, it is Meg Foster. And she is Evil Lynn. <laughs> yeah, and she is Evil and They Live as well. So yeah. I don't know. She's... It was it was jarring. I didn't particularly like it. I felt like there were a ton of other ways to go with that. But he telecasted it. Like, you knew that was what was going to happen. Oh, yeah. As soon as she came out and she was just like, oh, hey, I never gave up on you. And I'm like, do you live on this? Why was she there? Drilling rig? What's like, going on? Why was any of that there? Why were there people looking for the Yeah, there shouldn't people? have been anybody there. I have a theory. Ah. He does have a theory, and I like it. Okay. I'm not giving this movie credit for actually knowing this. <laughs> But um, a lot of times in in like submarines or other places, if you're going to have an emergency sort of buoy, like we saw at the beginning of The Abyss where they released the buoy that would at least give the black box recording, I'm willing to bet that in the design of that shack, the escape capsules, which didn't take into account decompression at all, would have had some sort of radio beacon. So irregardless of whether the corporation was telling the truth or telling everyone that they were dead and it was a tragedy, the Coast Guard would have independently independently picked up on that emergency beacon and been out there looking. So that was the answer I came to. The movie didn't provide this answer. It came to my head of like, of course they're there. They saw the emergency beacon. Makes sense. That's a great answer. That's good. You should have written the movie. Let's go with that. (laughs) You should have written this movie, Aaron. I feel like it's a missed opportunity. (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you find in a sunken Russian ship today? Well, this piece of trivia I read on IMDb, and I did actually try to find out if it did actually happen. So, in the first scene where um, Peter Weller's character, Beck, is is just mashing buttons, there's all sorts of stuff um, showing up on screen, there's a quick flash of an office lamp. Uh, right next to a ball with a star on it. And that's a clear reference to Pixar's first short film, Luxo Jr., which ended up being their uh, logo, logo uh, title yeah. sequence. Yeah, right. the one with the lamp bouncing up and down on the letter I. And so it's a clear reference, but I'm not sure the significance. Like, what? What are they? why are they referencing it? I'm not sure. But yeah, it came out in 1986. So three years earlier, so yeah. That's going to haunt me. Weird. I'm trying to do the six degrees of Kevin Bacon to try to figure out why they would do that, but that's really interesting. It's very odd. Don't know. Yeah. But there you go. There's that tiny bit of trivia that probably no one will ever notice. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just like the frames that Brad Pitt adds into Fight Club. Oh, I watch those. Definitely watch those. <laughs> and also the penis at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I always imagine it's Brad's. Wouldn't of it be course. funny if it was? <laughs> Worthwhile. <laughs> It's the kind of thing he would do, oddly enough. It is, I think so too, yeah. And that's our trivia. (laughs) 
So is it wrong that I side with Doc on this movie? I do. Well, he should have been more rigorous, though, because as you said, they just let this thing go, and now it's going to be in Subway tuna subs. (laughs) (laughs) No, not Subway tuna subs. Oh, wait, I never eat those. As long as they're not in the spicy Italian BMT, we'll be fine. Wow. Wasn't I found out recently that there's actually not much fish in the tuna subs? Wouldn't surprise me. I never (laughs) trusted those tuna subs. Well, somebody tried to genetically (laughs) test a Subway tuna sub. Oh, that's right. And it what was it? It was mostly Jared. (laughs) Jared. (laughs) That's how he lost weight. Gross. Sorry. Um, Yeah, but scientists have pointed out that the reason why you wouldn't detect any tuna is because it's been cooked and slathered in mayonnaise. (laughs) So it's not the cleanest way to do genetic testing, apparently. Well, I mean, let's think about it, though. Doc goes in, when he realizes that he wants his life to mean something, he goes back to the computer, he writes a report, which is not a great report, to the the scientific community or whatever he says. It's like very generic science body name, uh, and sends it out and then he releases all the escape capsules with the intention of isolating the thing there. This goes back to something that an author that I talked about a lot called Peter Watts talks about this a little bit, which is that when people are truly rational, they seem like monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was making a very rational decision that was mm. very detrimental to the people around him, but with the intention of protecting, I don't know, the rest of humanity from this horrible mutation that seems to be very contagious. So like, like you said, on the surface, you start to get mad and then you go, yeah, they probably should have all not made it yeah. out of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to segue to uh, the romance in this movie. Uh, what do oh, you yes. think about oh. that? Because I felt it was very forced, especially with that <laughs> music playing. Oh, Jerry. <laughs> very soppy music. Like, oh. just ran this romance down you. Mm. I know. I don't really see what the connection is between those two, and I don't really believe it. I think Amanda Pays is quite wooden in this movie, but they kind of all are, so I don't think it's her fault. I think it's the script and the direction. But I agree. I definitely don't buy it. I don't feel any chemistry between them. I don't know. It's it's not like a purely physical thing where they're just clearly really into each other and they don't have anything in common. So it's like, where is this coming from? Oh, it's because you read the script. Yeah, and that's yeah. why you're in love. Oh, <laughs> apparently we're in love. Hey, uh, cool. Did you read the script too? Wow. <laughs> did you see what's on page seven? Wow. Yes. This is going to be quite a journey we're on together. Yeah. <laughs> we're both white and under 40. There's only one thing that can happen. That's right. <laughs> that's it. It's inevitable. Yeah. The Abyss sidesteps that by have, doing the old thing that people usually do in sequels, which is have the couple that were already established in a relationship having split up so that they can get back together. Yeah. But we weren't convinced mm-hmm. by that either. We were okay with them. Them not having chemistry though, because they were getting a divorce. <laughs> yeah. so, so. But you've got Independence Day playing the same trick on us. Other uh, movies that's a doing, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't have to do the meet cute and the right. relationship development because there's just not time in this type of movie. Mm-hmm. Right. So they try to do it in this movie, but they've been working together for 90 days or something. Mm. So I guess it's supposed to have happened already. I don't get that though. I don't, I feel like maybe they, you know, have a, a slight, maybe crush on each other but not 
Like, if you wanted to have that in the script and you don't have time to develop it, then just have them trying to hide their affair from the rest of the crew. And that's sort of why you're not overtly showing, but, like, you kind of, like, have these little looks that they give each other or something. And, and that would sort of establish it so that it's there, but it's then they don't have to actually show it and act it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know. And they, they don't, don't have do to be so. in love to have an affair like that. Like, no. maybe the mistake here is trying to develop an actual romantic relationship. And when in reality, it was just two people under the ocean in a stressful situation Yikes, something Aaron. happened and that's then... not what the music is telling us <laughs> I don't think Goldsmith <laughs> yeah. probably said it's a whole I, different kind of I musical sound I can't write that I can't, I, what is the cue for that I don't know that musical language <laughs> like it's a whole different thing okay okay I back off of my statement <laughs> that's a whole different underwater movie as well, well I didn't mean you needed to like document it in great detail well I mean if you're gonna show all those like pinups why not yeah and all the bodies merging. This is something that they missed in The Thing. In the remake of The Thing, or the prequel reboot, I don't know what it is. The second Thing (laughs) movie. A sequel, seaboot, a reboot. It's like a portmanteau. (laughs) You know, the whole thing with that that I thought was promising is the first movie is an all-male movie and there's no relationships going on there. The second movie, they introduce different genders, so there's some possibilities there in terms of situations you could get into where a Thing monster could surprise you. (laughs) Um, But they, they didn't go there. No. And I was so looking forward to that. I bet you're fun at Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've already confessed my love of steamrolling children. (laughs) I just love the phrasing of that. You know, where a thing monster could surprise you. (laughs) It was delightful. It was pure delight in that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Leviathan. Bringing people together. <laughs> Literally. Literally, yes. It's the tagline. It's a Christmas film. Leviathan bringing people together. Just don't eat the tuna sub. <laughs> oh my gosh. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. It's the Movie Awards. It's where we put forth our favorite undersea parts of the film in a number of creature-simulating scaly categories. Best quote. So basically, it's when Six Pack is sort of sweeping next to Bo, and he says, what a pair. (laughs) And she's like, what did you say? And he sort of mutters something about how he was talking about their boss and the the doctor. And and he said, why? What did you think I was talking about? She said, I thought you were looking at my tits. (laughs) And she just is so matter of fact about it. It's just gold. It's just like, that's exactly what I would have said in that situation. Like, Mm. I just assume that knowing you, you're looking at my tits. (laughs) <laughs> and you give him that weird moment of like, oh, wait, she thought that was okay. Um, I don't know what to do now. That's like, right. Like, let's yeah. make him feel a little awkward for a minute since he's making everyone else awkward. Mm. Well, I feel really bad because, Melinda, you said that one of the things that you liked about Williams's character, Amanda Pays's character, is that she's astronaut training. But I have to say, when they were offering around the vodka... And she suddenly comes out with, my astronaut training starts in two days. I just roared with laughter. Oh, me too. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It is. It's like 
like, as you say, she just does not fit in with these blue-collar workers. There's this English lady with a plum in her mouth going, my astronaut training starts in two days. Can't, <laughs> can't possibly imbibe, darling. <laughs> so this is ridiculous. Funny. And of course, they're not staring down the barrel of like a 750 milliliters of vodka. They each have like two fingers in a glass of it. So it's not like yeah. you're going to be significantly impacted by no. this extravagant amount of vodka. <laughs> Best hair or Costume. The thing that really jumped out at me was Meg Foster's slicked back Robert Palmer video hair. Uh, it was oh, so yeah. severe and it's so unflattering and, and masculine, but not in a good way. Like it's just so, I don't even, I've never gotten that whole look. She's already a fairly severe looking person. I mean, she's beautiful and she's got the, the stunning eyes, but boy, that hair is just, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's a look. Yeah, it's something. <laughs> Aaron? I think that Beck's hair was magnificent in this. Peter Weller was rocking one of his finest manes that I have seen him have <laughs> in a movie. Uh, and I really appreciated the unconventional look that he has with his hairdo in, uh, in this. I think Peter Weller's uh, a wasted actor that we have not seen enough of. Mm. So yeah. I was pleased. Yeah. My pick was Amanda Pays, who has a scarf. A lovely fetching accessory. Here's somebody who's a blue collar worker. I mean, her astronaut training starts in two days. And when she packed to come on this mission, she thought, scarf. She's matching her underwear, Mustn't Conrad. She, she is really concerned about fashion, okay? <laughs> She's classy. Most Aces moment. I think evil corp is evil is sort of the trope that I, I'm going to go with just because, you know, you see it in Alien, you see it in so many other sort of horror type movies like this where it's like there's the monster you're dealing with, but then there's also the company that's like complicit in the whole situation. And I mean, you see it continued on, like especially with James Cameron, like an avatar and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But it's just, it's such a re reaction to 80s Reaganism type stuff that it's like, mm. okay. Very expected. Yeah. And building on that, I thought the most 80s thing in the movie was Meg Foster's office. <laughs> um, because uh. it's that lovely black faux wooden veneer desk and the accessories with the red piping on them. Yeah. The red and black. Yeah. I used to have that as bedroom oh, furniture. Oh, yeah. Wow. I had the black lacquer bedroom <laughs> furniture as well. So, yeah. 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 Mine was purple and black. So, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Subtly different. It's, yeah. Favorite scene. I have to say, it's my favorite because when I saw it, I laughed out loud at the end where Peter Weller just jumps up out of the ocean. And he's like, say, ah, oh, motherfucker. And he just like blasts the <laughs> Godzilla monster with a machine gun. I was like, wow, I didn't see that coming. But oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> I, like I'm a dentist. I mean, <laughs> this is. <laughs> I'm a violent <laughs> dentist and you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he could have at least done a fish pun. Come right? On. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Say bloop. <laughs> so, Aaron, how about you? Favorite scene for me, uh, it's kind of a toss-up. I, I love the scene where Beck and the doctor are talking, just having a quiet moment. I thought it was very well lit. There was just a lot of juicy dialogue in there. Mm. And I just felt like it was one of the most cohesive moments in the whole movie, where they were just sort of talking back and forth about the nature of what was happening and I liked that. Mm. True. Mm. And Dan? 
My favorite scene, I'm gonna go for a fix here. So uh, when the creature attacks DeJesus, I've just never seen something like that before, like really fast. Um, and, and obviously quite fishy as well. It didn't look too cheesy, like it looked scaly and, and fishy and it, it resembled kind of like a, a lamprey. I don't know whether you know yeah. that creature, yep. but it's just a lot of teeth. And, and just a really emotional moment as well as he's kind of reaching out to, is it Bowman or? No, it's, it's Williams, right? I think it's Ernie Hudson. It oh, is. is it? Okay. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah, it is. because they make puzzles together, don't right. they? Oh, yeah, and they're getting ready oh, to yeah, yeah. Uh, to get back together to fix that puzzle that got flipped over in an earlier scene. Yeah, that touching. took millions of hours. Yeah, <laughs> that didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it took me millions of hours to put that puzzle together. I'm like, are you it's okay? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Most cliche horror moment. So for most cliched horror moment, I'm going to go with the character walking into the room with the dead body and they don't realize the person's dead and they don't do any kind of checking on the very, very sick person. They just have a sheet completely pulled all the way over the head and that seems fine. It's a pet peeve of mine. I'm just like, what? Why would you do that? Mm. Where does it rank for you in terms of um, medical inaccuracies next to electrocuting people who are flatlined? <laughs> um, I, I still think the electrocuting people who are flatlined is worse, but I think, you know, with the doctor not checking a pulse with the dead lady in the shower, and there's, I mean, granted, the person who walks in, it's Ernie Hudson's character again, you know, he's not a doctor, so I kind of give him a pass on that, but still, it's just common sense. If you've got a really sick person who's in isolation and no one is in there with them and you walk in and there's a sheet pulled completely over their head you know maybe check yeah. under the sheet i don't know like just maybe <laughs> check uh most cliched moment is it's obvious i'm surprised it hasn't been mentioned it's the <laughs> black african-american character who makes it all the way to the end of the movie and then just dies for no yeah. reason super yeah. cliched and, and unfortunate so yeah yeah, I imagine they're all in a club somewhere. You know, he turns up and Yafet Koto buys him a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah. that plan. Best special effect. The Godzilla monster at the end, like the, it's unexpected. And I remember when it jumped up out of the ocean, I squealed because I just <laughs> was not expecting that to happen uh, and for it to look like that. And so it just made me laugh really hard. I don't think that was the intention, yeah. but uh, I, I did elicit a response so it was my favorite okay i like to think it was an unrelated yeah. monster that had nothing to do with what they were dealing with <laughs> yeah i mean treat williams will suddenly shout what now yeah, exactly. <laughs> get out of the ocean let's just get out of the ocean exactly <laughs> Uh, mine is another uh, creature uh, effect, but it was the one where you had Bo and Six Pack merged into this weird, gooey, twitching thing on the floor. Mm. And even though the reactions of the movie were very lithiumed, you know, just like, oh, look at that. <laughs> They've merged into <laughs> two people in one. Uh, this again? Put it into the Ziploc and put it out the back door. Somebody will come get it. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like that was just really disturbing. Just this, just seeing it sort of like, and in my head, I'm like, you know, trying to like empathize. Like, what are these people think? What is this creature dealing with? Right now? <laughs> it had to be something crazy. Yeah. My favorite one is a fun one as well. It's from the uh, dry for wet ocean scenes. There is this one fish they have on a fishing wire. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> squeaks past yes. the camera in a couple of shots. <laughs> and I love it. And I want it to have a name or something. Nemo. I feel like it's a supporting it's character. Nemo. Yeah. 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 Or we could just imagine it going, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. <laughs> <laughs> Are you my mom? Favorite sound effect. So we've all mentioned the, the punch at the end, but that is the most 80s sounding punch I have ever heard. I mean, it's got the the whole <laughs> sound to it. It's just ridiculous. It's definitely the most memorable part of this movie, for sure. I was just like, no, 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 yep, yep, he did. Yeah, let's end punching the female boss. <laughs> Why not? I think it's fine. Yeah. I gotta say, as, as the female on this podcast, I'm gonna say it's fine. She was she was pretty contemptible, so mm, I don't know. I don't <laughs> I really liked that high-pitched squealing noise that I swear the monster was making. Aaron swears that it's the hydraulics. It's, of, not, it's just the I, hydraulics. In my mind, it is the <laughs> quivering flesh of the conjoined monster being. What part of those two characters makes that and, sound? What does any of this mean, Aaron? We're living in an alternate reality. Like, nothing means anything. How Let me have my dream. How postmodern of you. I like the idea that it's 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 whole being is just going like it's just every bit of it. It's just horrible. <laughs> like dry ice. It's unnerving because it's high pitched and you know mm. just you know you're you're hardwired yeah. in your brain to recoil from that sound. It's why people scream like yeah. that high pitched warning sound. So it's just it sets your nerve endings on edge. Mm -hmm. It's Bowman realizing that six-pack is permanently touching her tits. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> That's what, it is. what a pair they are too, right? The two of them <laughs> meshed together. What a pair. Yeah. Like I said, what when you pair. try to empathize with whatever this creature has become, it's a dark place you have to get to. <laughs> Most funniest moment. Aside from the Godzilla monster at the end, the, the part that made me laugh out loud was when uh, Ernie Hudson's character says, the only skin problem I can see is white people. And uh, <laughs> I was like... Yeah, wait till the end of the movie. You'll, you'll really feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. I kind of liked the uh, the fast exit he made when he thought that he had disturbed his uh, six-pack friend sleeping, who was clearly, like, literally growing mouths on his arms and other disturbing features. <laughs> but he walks in, he's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? All right, man. Oh, okay, I'll get out of here. And he just sort of bloop, out, out of the door. <laughs> Uh, in a room that had frosted glass on the door and then a giant crystal clear viewing window directly next to it. So they were meant to think they didn't have any insight into what was going on in that room unless they went into the room. And, but that did make me laugh when he just sort of ducked out really quick. Like, I'm sorry, I'll come back later. Yeah. <laughs> Ernie Hudson is the best source of comedy in this movie. My yeah. favorite is when they're asking Meg Foster when they're going to be picked up. And she says, uh, I realize you must have gone through hell. And Ernie replies, gone? Bitch, we still here. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene too. Oh, it's brilliant. Okay. And that's our move, please. <laughs> Hi, this is Catherine Mary Stewart, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette. Final verdict time. Should Leviathan resurface from the deep to be released to the world to be revered, or should it say, ah, and be blown to smithereens, sinking to the bottom <laughs> of the Oubliette lost forever? 
our guest today, Melinda, Aaron. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I want you to go first, Aaron. I am with the doctor. We should blow the escape pods. We should trap everyone aboard this movie and sink it to the bottom of the abyss that is your oubliette. <laughs> the abyss, huh? Yes, uh, to the <laughs> abyssal depths of the oubliette. I did, I did find a lot of things I enjoyed here, but I think that it is, it is good enough to tell the world what has happened and then destroy the evidence of it. <laughs> so I guess I kind of agree with you. I... You know, in watching it, I remember in the first 20 minutes, I was like, wow, I really enjoy this a lot more than The Abyss. Mm -hmm. But by the end, it was sort of like, I just don't really know if there's anything new here. I mean, we're sort of retreading ground that's been covered by so many other films that did it better and, you know, Mm -hmm. the first time around. So you have Alien and Aliens and Die Hard and Rambo, all the Rambo movies and... Even The Abyss, like, and The Thing, and all of these other movies, it's just sort of like, the the movie sort of becomes the monster, it's sort of the amalgamation of, like, a bunch of movies that are, like, the Leviathan monster, <laughs> right? <laughs> of all of these movies that it's sort of comprised and swallowed up, and so <laughs> it's sort of very meta yeah. in that way, but I don't know if it warrants really spending a lot of time on no, and like that monster, it's like a, a big amorphous turd that's stuck to the ground and can't move particularly. <laughs> right. Save Dan for last, I think, because I think he he may have a different opinion. I, I'm in agreement with you. I, d- I don't think it works particularly well. And for all this, the reasons that you've given, it doesn't make any sense. It never really engages me. I don't believe in any of the characters and I'm not scared by the monster in any way. Worst of all, Jerry Goldsmith's music is obvious and on autopilot and boring, which is really quite a sin for Jerry Goldsmith, but I guess he was working with what he was working with. So yeah, I, I'm afraid I would scuttle the ship and, and send it back <laughs> down there as well. <laughs> well, that's three against one. Uh, I I really <laughs> love this movie. Uh, I think it, it purely on just the fun aspect and just the nonsensical reactions and ridiculous science and everything's all wrong, but all in all the right ways. And I love, <laughs> you know, I just love stupid, slithery, slimy, formless, Lovecraftian <laughs> monsters that make no sense and people dying. That's what I'm all about. Ticks all my boxes. <laughs> I, I, I think I've become aware that I do love underwater aquatic movies as well, similar to the horror queers. Uh, it's just a fun, dumb movie that everyone should watch, especially if you like body horror and dumb movies. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can I can see that. I can see that. It's not three hours long. Uh, well, amen to that. that. Yes. It's not three hours long. <laughs> yeah, there's no huge theme about climate change or the demise <laughs> of humanity. It's just a monster killing people, and that's all I want in a movie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody says ha-who at the end of it, so <laughs> no. That's a fair point. But sadly, you're outvoted, Dan. Oh, so so outfitted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just strap some weights to this thing and just throw it back in there. I survived the sharks. No!
Don't worry, a piece of it will be sliced off and slither around in the water by your feet and eventually turn into the monster that will chase you to the surface yes. again. You'll find uh-huh. it again in your Subway uh-huh. sandwich. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Melinda and Aaron, it has been amazing having you on the show and for us to do this crossover. Where can people find out more about your show and hear more about your thoughts on movies and other bits of pop culture from the 80s? Well, you can always find us at uh, retroblasting.com slash dreamland, uh, where you can see all of our latest episodes and occasionally on the main streaming platform on YouTube, which is at youtube.com slash retroblasting. And we do live streams every other weekend and then alternating. Aaron and I do a live version of our podcast, Dreamland, where we talk about 80s, 90s, pop culture type stuff and sort of do that weird going down a rabbit hole thing that, you know, you may not want to spend the time to do, but we just spiral off into all those weird rabbit holes and and tell you all the weird information that you never knew you wanted to know about stuff like Howard the Duck. Sometimes I don't even want to know (laughs) some of the things that we find. (laughs) Yeah, it changes your worldview, but... Yeah. Looking at you, KLF. <laughs> so thank you guys. We're huge fans. We're, I know I'm a huge fan of this podcast, mm-hmm. so I'm super excited to be here. No, I'm joining your ranks. I'm catching up. So. Okay, I'll fight you. <laughs> That's fine. Let's compete. Okay. Let's see who can be the bigger fan of Movie <laughs> okay. Oubliette. Okay. <laughs> well, we're big fans of your podcast too because it's mm-hmm. it's so wonderfully researched and yeah, all the things that you never dreamed you ever wanted to know about a topic <laughs> like the garbage pale kids. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's been great, this crossover. We should do it again. We should. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to follow us, we're on all social media as Movie Oubliette, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're there, so we love to hear from you. Please do get in touch. You can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you can nominate and vote on films for us to cover in future episodes and gain access to extra bits from the show, such as extended Moobly Awards and extra bits from our interviews with special guests. Yes, and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform you are listening to us on. It does help us out. It does. And our egos. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? Well, we thought that we would go back to our list of patrons' nominations again because Isaac felt bad about coming up again last time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to spin the wheel again using all the suggestions that our patrons submitted last time. Yes, it's time for... All right, do you want to give it a spin, Conrad? Yep, here it goes. Here we go. Gosh, it's fast. (laughs) All the colours. Oh, what is it? It's Silent Running. Oh, who picked this one? So this was suggested by Matthew. So thanks for nominating that. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. I don't think I've seen this one. I think I've seen the other running one, uh, Logan's Run. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, this is 70s as well. Silent Running is a 1972 environmental-themed American post-apocalyptic science fiction film starring Bruce Dern and directed by Douglas Trumbull, the special effects genius. Oh, great. Great. Can't wait to go back to the 70s again. Yeah. I hope it's less graphs. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, fingers crossed. Thanks again, Dreamland, for joining us on this episode. And it has been loads of fun being part of Iconicon. Uh, listeners, stay tuned next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't run up the movie you yet. So what's next, Doc? I mean, what if we run out of airplanes one day? What are we gonna do? Just grow a whole bunch of bird people?